Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for book 8, chapter 4. What do you think will happen when Natasha and Maya meet? Do you think they'll like each other? And Maya almost reveals her abuse to Pierre, but stops just short and insists nothing's wrong. Why do you think she does this? If told the full truth now, how do you think Pierre would react? I think Pierre's got a nature about him that he's the kind of guy that, you know, wealth aside at his core. And I think that's what Maya sees. Um, People feel comfortable to open up to him a little bit. And she almost steps right into that and, and does really open up to him. Just stops herself in time. Kara Kikar says, Is it just me, or is this the first time Pierre seems sort of savvy? In the novel, until this point, he has fumbled his way along. Even his spiritual searchings were played as foolish in comparison to Andre's more mature approach. But here he has noticed something that Maya didn't, and acted in a mature and empathetic way. Have I missed the signs that Pierre was growing and maturing, or is this truly a new Revelation for him. Ryan Dundev said he is savvy at being simple and kind of straightforward. People. Wait, did I read that wrong? He is savvy and kind to straightforward people where others struggle with it. Where he's a fish out of water is in the scheming high society where nothing is ever at it, as it seems and everyone has hidden motives. Warren Kavaki says... I noticed this, that Pierre actually seems much more sure and composed than earlier parts of the book. Uh, he still appears to be of an overindulging, a bit of an overindulging party animal, but I think he's also grown up quite a bit overall. It's good when you see a character growing up, evolving, a bit of character development. Fragrance Girl says, I think that everyone loves being around Natasha and so will Maya. I think they'll be fast confidants. However, I'm still not convinced this marriage will happen. I wish we knew more about what Andre was up to and who he was engaging with, but he keeps writing letters to Natasha, so I guess maybe his heart is still in it. I wish Maya would have confided in Pierre about her father. I fear that poor girl has no future if someone isn't advocating for her. I think Pierre would have helped her. Not sure I'm for a marriage with Boris, though. That's not that happy future I want for Maya. Maya, one of my favourite characters in the book, I think. Complex and sweet. Uh, Short and sweet tonight, speaking of sweet, because I'm in the middle of busy week, right? So I'm just going to keep cruising. So I'm going to read you chapter 5 right now, and then I'm going to go to bed. Boris had not succeeded in making a wealthy match in Petersburg, so with the same object in view he came to Moscow. There he wavered between the two richest heiresses, Julie and Princess Mary. Though Princess Mary, despite her plainness, seemed to him more attractive than Julie, he, without knowing why, felt awkward about paying court to her. When they had last met on the old prince's name day, she had answered at random all his attempts to talk sentimentally, evidently not listening to what he was saying. 
Julie, on the contrary, accepted his attentions readily, though in a manner peculiar to herself. She was 27. After the death of her brothers, she had become very wealthy. She was by now decidedly plain, but thought herself not merely as good-looking as before, but even far more attractive. She was confirmed in this delusion by the fact that she had become a very wealthy heiress, and also by the fact that the older she grew, the less dangerous she became to men, and the more freely they could associate with her and avail themselves to her, soup, to her suppers, soirees, and the animated company that assembled in her house, without incurring any obligation. A man who would have been afraid ten years before of going every day to the house when there was a girl of seventeen there, for fear of compromising her and committing himself, would now go boldly every day and treat her not as a marriageable girl, but as a sexless acquaintance. That winter, the Karagin's house was the most agreeable and hospitable in Moscow. In addition to the formal evening and dinner parties, a large company, chiefly of men, gathered there every day, supping at midnight and staying till three in the morning. Julie never missed a ball, a promenade, or a play. Her dresses were always of the latest fashion, but in spite of that, she seemed to be disillusioned about everything and told everyone that she did not believe either in friendship or in love, or any of the joys of life, and expected peace only yonder. She adopted the tone of one who has suffered a great disappointment, like a girl who has either lost the man she loved or been cruelly deceived by him. Though nothing of the kind had happened to her, she was regarded in that light, and had even herself come to believe that she had suffered much in life. This melancholy, which did not prevent her amusing herself, did not hinder the young people who came to her house from passing the time pleasantly. Every visitor who came to the house paid his tribute to the melancholy mood of the hostess, and then amusing himself with society gossip, dancing intellectual games and belserines, which were in vogue at Carrigan's. Only a few of these young men, among them Boris, entered more deeply into Julie's melancholy, and with these she had prolonged conversations in private on the vanity of all worldly things, and to them she showed her albums filled with mournful sketches, maxims and verses. To Boris, Julie was particularly gracious. She regretted his early disillusion disillusionment with life, <clears throat> offered him such consolation of friendship as she had herself suffered, so much could render, and showed herself her sorry, and showed him her album. Boris sketched two trees in the album and wrote Rustic trees, your dark branches shed gloom and melancholy upon me. On another page he drew a tomb and wrote uh, in French, I'll read the English translation, because you don't want to hear me read a bunch of French. Uh, Death gives relief and death is peaceful. Ah, from suffering there is no other refuge. Julie said this was charming. There is something so enchanting in that smile of melancholy, she said to Boris, repeating word for word a passage she had copied from a book. It is a ray of light in the darkness, a shade between sadness and despair, showing the possibility of constellation. In reply, Boris wrote these lines, also in French, Poisonous nourishment of a too sensitive soul. 
thou without whom happiness would for me be impossible tender melancholy ah come to console me come to calm the torments torments of my gloomy retreat and mingle a secret sweetness with these tears that I feel to be flowing. <laughs> For Boris, Julie played most doleful nocturnes on her harp. Boris read poor Lisa aloud to her, and more than once interrupted the reading because of the emotions that choked him. Meeting at large gatherings, Julie and Boris looked on one another as the only souls who understood one another in the world of indifferent people. Anna Mikhailovna, who often visited the Karagins while playing cards with the, mother, with the mother, made careful inquiries as to Julie's dowry. She was to have two estates in Penza and the Nizhogorod forests. Anna Mikhailovna regarded the refined sadness that united her son to the wealthy Julie with emotion and resignation to the divine will. You are always charming and melancholy, my dear Julie, she said to her the daughter. Boris says his soul finds repose at your house. He has suffered so many disappointments and is so sensitive, she said to the mother. Ah, my dear, I can't tell you how fond I have grown of Julie latterly, said, she said to her son. But she could help, sorry, but who could help loving her? She is an angelic being. Ah, Boris, Boris, she paused. And how I pity her mother, she went on. Today she showed me her accounts and letters from Penza. They have enormous estates there. And she, poor thing, has no one to help her. And they do cheat her so. Boris smiled almost imperceptibly while listening to his mother. He laughed blandly at her naive diplomacy, but listened to what she had to say and sometimes questioned her carefully about the Penza and Nizhegorod estates. Julie had long been expecting a proposal from her melancholy adorer and was ready to accept it, but some secret feeling of repulsion for her, for her passionate desire to get married, for her artificiality, and a feeling of horror at renouncing the possibility of real love still restrained Boris. His leave was expiring. He spent every day and whole days at the Karagans, and every day, on thinking the matter over, told himself that he would propose tomorrow. But in Julie's presence, looking at her red face and chin, nearly always powdered, her moist eyes and her expression of continual readiness to pass at once from melancholy to an unnatural rapture of married bliss, Boris could not utter the decisive words, though in imagination he had long regarded himself as the possessor of those Penza and Nizhegorod estates, and had apportioned the use of the income from them. Julie saw Boris's indecision, and sometimes the thought occurred to her that she was repulsive to him, but her feminine self-deception immediately supplied her with consolation, and she told herself that she, that he was only shy from love. Her melancholy, however, began to turn to irritability, and not long before Boris's departure, she formed a definite plan of action. Just as Boris's leave of absence was expiring, Anatoly Kuragin made his appearance in Moscow, and of course in the Kuragin's drawing room and Julie, suddenly abandoning her melancholy, became cheerful and very attentive to Kuragin. My dear, said Anna Mikhailovna to her son, I know from a reliable source that Prince Vasily has sent his son to Moscow to get him married to Julie. I'm so fond of Julie that I should be sorry for her. What do you think of it, my dear? The idea of being made a fool of and having 
thrown away that whole month of arduous melancholy service to Julie and of seeing all the revenue from the Penzer estates, which he had already mentally apportioned and put to proper use, fall into the hands of another, and especially into the hands of that idiot Anatole, pained Boris. He drove to the Karagins with the firm intention of proposing. Julie met him in a gay, careless manner, spoke casually of how she had enjoyed yesterday's ball, and asked when he was leaving. Though Boris had come intentionally to speak of his love, and therefore meant to be tender, he began speaking irritably of feminine inconstancy, of how easily women can turn from sadness to joy, and how their moods depend solely on who happens to be paying court to them. Julie was offended and replied that it was true that a woman needs variety, and that same thing over and over would weary anyone. Then I should advise you, Boris began, wishing to sting her, but at that instant the galling thought occurred to him that he might have to leave Moscow without having accomplished his aim and have vainly wasted his efforts, which was a thing he never allowed to happen. He checked himself in the middle of the sentence, lowered his eyes to avoid seeing her unpleasantly irritated and irresolute face, and said, I did not come here at all to quarrel with you, on the contrary. He glanced at her, to make sure that he might go on. Her irritability had suddenly quite vanished, and her anxious, imploring eyes were fixed on him with greedy expectation. I can always arrange so as not to see her often, thought Boris. The affair has been begun and must be finished. He blushed hotly, raised his eyes to her, and says, You know my feelings for you. There was no need to say more. Julie's face shone with triumph and self-satisfaction, but she forced Boris to say all that is said on such occasions, that he loved her and had never loved any other woman more than her. She knew that for the Penza estates and Nizagorod forests she could demand this, and she received what she demanded. The affianced couple, no longer alluding to trees that shed gloom and melancholy upon them, planned the arrangements of a splendid house in Petersburg paid calls and prepared everything for a brilliant wedding. Alright, there we go. Another chapter. Oh, <laughs> Boris. Boris and Julie, both of you, what, what a horrible arrangement you've just uh, done, made. That was silly. That was silly by you guys. <laughs> Um, Boris say, oh, you know, I can always make it so I don't have to see her often. To talk himself into doing it. Oh, that's not a good sign, my friend. Have your say about it over on the subreddit. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you tomorrow.